This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and analyst for MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. No guest this week, so we're just going to get right into a couple of interesting things to talk about. We're going to wonder what the standings look like in this weirdo year and how they're maybe not as far off from expectations as we thought. Dig into the quieter thing that Fernando Tatis Jr. is doing well. Wonder what a world in which Jacob Grom wins a third consecutive Cy Young might look like by reader request, listener request. Dig into the Oakland A's. Uh, and as usual, we will get into focusing on some interesting players you might not know enough about and some fun rants at the end of the show. I do want to start with the standings, though. I don't think I need to tell anybody who's listening that this is a very weird and unusual and crazy and silly baseball year. And part of that goes into having 60 games instead of 162 games. What might happen? You know, could you end up with the Tigers and the Orioles and the ALCS? I guess it's still possible. But what I was struck by is when I looked at the standings the other day and you look at the top of the leaderboards and we know we're still only like 35, 40 games into the season. Right now, the division leaders are in the American League, the Rays. Uh, Cleveland and Chicago tied at the top of the Central, Oakland, and then the National League, Atlanta, Chicago, and the Dodgers. And that sounds right to me. <laughs> like, that doesn't sound... You could have made that projection at the beginning of a regular six-month season, and you wouldn't have been far off. And if you look at some of the teams on the bottom, too, the Royals are not good. The Pirates are not good. I know the Yankees are having a weird year. The Orioles are playing better than expected. Um, but what do you think, Matt? I was sort of surprised, I guess, a little bit at, at how quickly things sort of looked like I thought they would. Um, well, I, I guess, you know, I can toot my horn, own horn and say I'm not surprised at all because um, in the American League, those are exactly, I think, my picks um, for who was going to win the divisions. I definitely had the um, Rays, A's, and White Sox to win. And I know that I was um, perhaps mocked by you on this on this very podcast for maybe being a little Me? early, early no. on the White Sox. Um, but um, so far, that one is actually looking pretty decent. And I know that I had the Cubs in the NL, and I'm pretty sure I had the Braves and Dodgers as well. So I might be six for six. I'm trying to actually pull this up now as we speak. Um, I might be six for six, but if not, I'm, I'm close. So I cannot say that I'm surprised about um, – Surprised about that? Yes, as I'm, I'm looking at it right now, those are exactly my 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 six division picks. So I can't say I'm surprised about that. No. Um, what's more surprising, I guess, is what's kind of going on at the fringes of the races, right? Where we're seeing, you know, right now the Yankees holding on for dear life as an eight seed um, in this expanded playoff, and in the NL you've got the Marlins and Giants in the playoffs today at the playoff start today. That's the kind of stuff that I think is really what is uh, what's surprising people, right? Yeah, I guess so. I mean. When I, when I compare uh, the opening day Fangraph standings to what we have now, right? And you just mentioned the Giants. They are one of only four teams who are projected to be under 500 and now over 500. And if you look at those four teams, the Phillies were projected to be under 500 by like uh, yeah, 497. So that's like basically at 500, right? And they're a little better than that. The Jays, the Marlins, 
and the Giants. I don't think the Jays taking a step forward is a huge surprise. Uh, the Marlins, obviously, we know uh, their season's been bizarre, although I'm proud of myself for not picking them last. I picked them in fourth because I sort of like them. And then the Giants. And you brought this up privately yesterday and I haven't had a chance to look into it. Uh, the Giants can hit now, like at home. <laughs> Brandon Belt, who has you know, always been killed by his home park, is now like 300 points of OPS better at home. Is that small sample weirdness? Um, I don't know, but I would like to find out. Then you've got 12 teams that were projected to be over 500 and are great. Eight teams that were projected to be under 500 and are great. And then six teams that were expected to be over 500, but aren't. And I think those are the interesting ones, right? Um, I was very down on the Brewers. I hated their offseason. I was very down on the Angels because they couldn't pitch. You know, the Mets are the Mets. They could be in first or last, and that would surprise nobody. Um, we knew the Red Sox weren't going to pitch in the least. I was actually surprised they were projected as high as they were. The the two teams, I guess, that have surprised me in terms of underperforming are the Reds and the Nationals. Um, the Nationals have the oldest or close to it team in baseball. And I think we talked about this over the winter. That seemed great for like a couple month postseason run, but it didn't seem like it was going to uh, work to just kind of bring the, the same guys back. Right. I mean, what's the most surprising team to you other than the Giants, I guess, at this point? Um, it's. I mean, I, I want to say the Yankees just because, like, you know, they started out so hot. But it's, it's hard to separate the Yankees from their um, – and right now they're, what, 500. The thing is, with the Yankees, it's hard to separate them from their injuries. And, you know, it's sort of like that's that's, that's kind of happened year in and year out. I mean, you build a team that's relying on Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stan and we'll – they're sort of seeing the, the the problem with that because they can never get the two of them on the field together. They were on the field together for like the first two weeks of the season. The Yankees started sixteen and six. They both got hurt, and they're what five and fifteen since and hit five hundred. So um, it doesn't kind of um, take a genius to figure out kind of why the Yankees are struggling. You know, in the past couple of years, they've managed to to get some of these amazing performances out of nowhere. You know, you're your Mike Talkman, who seems to have come back to earth, you know, was kind of like almost like a um, was like an above average player the last year and a half. This year he's been pretty terrible. There's always the expectation that maybe Gary Sanchez is going to figure it out. And now I think we may just have to believe that Gary Sanchez like is not going to figure it out and maybe just is not a very good hitter. Um, so the Yankees is sort of hard to separate from the from the um, injuries, I guess. I, you're right. That's the thing. None of these, all the teams that are sort of like underperforming all kind of had red flags. You mentioned the Reds, right? They added a lot of players, but it was still kind of like a square peg situation where like the pieces didn't necessarily fit that cleanly. And you could definitely see some potential downside there. Um, so the it's more the overperformers that are that are kind of surprising. But again, we're talking about a 45 game sample, right? The idea of like right. the, 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 Marlins going 19 and 18 over a 37 game sample. People are like, oh, wow, the Marlins are playing so well. I mean, they're surprising, but they're like, they're one game over 500 with a, with a, with a run differential of zero. So they're like, I guess they're overperforming and there are reasons to believe that they might be a better. I mean, the thing about them now is they've actually improved their team. They've added Sixto Sanchez who, from the minors who looks like a, a beast and they traded for Sterling Marte. So, like, actually, the Marlins are now a better, legitimately a better team than they were on opening day. You can sort of say, okay, well, like, now they are really well positioned to make the playoffs and be kind of interesting when they get to the playoffs. Um, whereas, like, um, some of the other teams that are kind of surprising still feel like kind of f- like full gold, like the uh, 
like the Orioles do a little bit. Then again, the, I mean, it's hard to believe that the Orioles and Yankees have a four-game series this weekend that's like basically going to decide the final playoff spot. Must watch baseball. It's <laughs> not something I imagined saying when the season began. If the season ended today, and I guess that's always a possibility at this point, the Rays <laughs> and the Yankees would have a first-round playoff matchup. And as we say today, it's Wednesday afternoon as we're recording this. So maybe that changes by the time you hear this. How fun would a Rays and Yankees three-game set be after all of the you know back-and-forth garbage between those two teams so far this year? I, I would watch that is what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. I mean, like from a, from a you know, you, you actually kind of want to see the Yankees get some of their guys back on the field just to make it feel like it was like the re- kind of the real representative teams facing each other. Um, I, I would have, obviously it's, you know, you'd like to see the Rays kind of uh, make a little bit of a run, or at least it'd be, it'd be nice to see them make a little run. Cause it fe- seems like finally the, the, the success on the field is matching, you know, sort of the expectations going into the, for the first, they're, they're not sneaking up on anyone like in their, their first place, they've got the best record in the American league. So um, also, I mean, but Rays Orioles would also be amusing, but yes, Rays Yankees, given the the history between those two teams and the, the animosity would definitely be, um, would be uh, one to watch. So yeah, to, just to go through, I think it's fun to go through it all. If the, if the playoffs started today, it would be Rays Yankees, A's Twins. Um, noted that the A's have what, I think the A's have won. Is it the A's? That, is there one playoff series win in like the Billy Bean era when they beat the Twins in the, in the division series in 06? Was that, am I getting that right? That sounds vaguely familiar, but I honestly don't remember. The Indians, Astros, and White Sox, Blue Jays. It'd be kind of a, it'd be awesome to see the White Sox and Blue Jays in the first round because of all the young talent. But it'd be almost like sad that one of them would have to go. Um, and then actually, you'd have Giants, Dodgers, which is just would be amazing if <laughs> like this Giants team knocked out the Dodgers. Um, um, Cubs, Marlins, uh, you know Re- Bartman revenge series um, <laughs> right there. Um, you have you know, Braves, Cardinals rematch of last year's DS and Padres Phillies. So that's kind of the fun of these the expanded playoffs is you're getting the, all these matchups, some of which have like these rich, rich, rich histories and others that are like, wait, what? These teams have no history. There's nothing there, but that's sort of kind of the randomness is kind of what makes it, makes it exciting. You know what I just realized about the A's and we'll get to them more in just a minute. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about this first round of three game playoff series, but it does prevent the A's from losing the one game wild card, which they have done. <laughs> In each of the last two years, and also in 2014. So I think they will be thrilled just to have multiple games. All right, let's go to our three batter minimum segment where we kind of dig into three interesting topics. Um, And my first one here is, I don't know if you guys noticed, Fernando Tatis Jr. is having a really good year. He is crushing the ball. He is, uh, if not the front runner for the National League MVP, I guess he's definitely at least in the conversation Right, he is. Uh, he's hitting. He's fielding. He's running. He is. He's flashy. He is the next big baseball superstar. And I guess the word you use to describe him is I don't know, loud, exciting. Like there's nothing quiet about him. You know, it's, he crushes it, and he's a lot of fun to watch. But I do think that there is something quiet about him that's important to notice, and that's his defense has uh, improved in a way you might not have expected. I think. You could have surprised a lot of people last year. You watch him making all these ridiculous highlight plays to say, well, actually, he was not a very good shortstop last year. Remember, he only played 83 games at short because he got hurt a couple of times. And if you were to look at the stat cast metric outs above average, he had a minus 13 mark, which was tied for the fifth worst. Remember, he played half the season. 26 shortstops played more innings than he did, and no one in baseball at any position had more throwing errors than he did, 14. He actually made enough throwing errors to get into a tie for the 19th most in a season of the 30-team era 
dating back to 1998. And if you watched it, it wasn't that he had problems getting to the ball, obviously. It was mostly that he would get to the ball and make a throw really he should have just eaten like he had no business making or just make a, a wild throw that Eric Cosmer couldn't get. I actually I split it into difficulty and you can look at the difficulty of each individual play, rank it from a zero percent, like a no shot to a 100 percent. Everybody makes this play. And I sort of arbitrarily split it into three different categories of easy, medium and hard. And on the hard plays, the ones that are uh, considered to be a zero to 40 percent chance of being made, he's actually slightly above average. He was plus one. He's good at the hard plays. This is last year. Lousy on the medium plays. So between 40 and 80 percent chance of being made, he was minus five and terrible on the easy plays. Between 80% and 100% chance of being made, he was minus nine. I think that tells a lot of the story. Um, obviously, he was a rookie. He's a young guy. He was trying to make every play because he's got a cannon of an arm. And he was just making a lot of mistakes. And overall, that made him kind of a not a valuable shortstop to the point where I wondered if he was going to be an outfielder at some point. Well, flash forward to this year. So far, he has played 355 in the third innings. That is the most many shortstop in baseball. He has one error. And it wasn't throwing, it was fielding. Uh, we're going to release our infield outs above average for the season in a couple of days. And he's plus one. That doesn't sound flashy, but remember last year he was minus 13. So he's gone from near unplayable to average or slightly above. If you look at the Padres infield as a group, last year they were terrible. Next to last, minus 25 outs above average this year, plus three. That is fifth, obviously, in just a couple of weeks of play. And I think that is worth stopping to to focus on for all the big loud fun exciting things that tatis does improving the easy plays not messing up the simple ones is as valuable as any of the rest of that i think and that's a a big reason that the padres um are having kind of you know maybe a year ahead of schedule breakout season uh yeah with 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 that question it's kind of cool and i think it's as you said it's kind of unnoticeable just because like he was already making the flashy plays last year so people kind of assumed he was a great defender but now that the um the uh the the metrics are lining up with um with the the eye test and we're seeing it we, we know kind of more objectively that he is as good as people people thought he was and also it's you know i'm, I'm very interested to and we'll probably go, go over this maybe in our next show of like what the the infield outs above average leaderboard tells us because this is like an interesting story that we're getting right here with like tatis and his improvement two things about tatis i want to mention you said amazing things did you see that you the the play of him getting like getting it was on Tuesday night, I guess. He was pitched inside. He did like a limbo. Yes. Basically, like, <laughs> like it, it, folks, listeners, if you didn't see it, go to it, Sarah Langs tweeted it, and uh, you should go to her Twitter feed. It may be the most impressive athletic, most impressive like athletic move he's ever done, and that's saying a lot from Fernando um, Tatis Jr. Uh, the second thing I'll mention is that you mentioned him as MVP favorite. I think that it's like, I want to say he's like a virtual lock at this point. Um, you know, well, now I'm going to have to actually pull up the leaderboard because I was just sort of speaking off. Well, I'm looking at the, the I'm looking at I'm looking at fan graphs, right? I'm looking at the the the, the war leaderboard, and and to be clear, listeners, I'm not saying that the the war, especially in you know 50, 50 game sample, is like the the definitive word on who the best player is. Just to be clear, it is a starting point. I, I treat it as a starting point, not an ending point. To to be clear, but as a starting point, he is far and away number one in baseball. He's at three point one war. No, no one else is above 2.3. You've got Mookie Betts and Mike Yastrzemski at, at 2.3 amongst position players. I should be, I should be clear. Um, so I think when you factor in the fact that he's leading in in Fangraphs war, the narrative is totally behind him. The Padres are sort of like the exciting like upstarts of the season. 
Uh, he does everything. He's doing everything well, everything exciting. It sort of feels like it's almost like a, uh, it's a fait accompli that he's going to win um, American uh, National League MVP. American League will be much trickier. I just realized something I didn't even know that Mike Trout doesn't even lead the Angels in war on fan graphs. Um, Anthony Rendon has quietly surpassed him, but I guess because the Angels as a team have been so underwhelming that um, and Rendon's amazing season's kind of getting kind of getting forgotten. But I think that you know. Uh, as of now, we're going to be running an MVP poll on uh, MLB.com on Friday, and I have to imagine that Tatis is going to be running away with the with the National League now. I think you're probably right. I think, yeah, Yastrzemski's not going to win it. Betts has had a, a great season, but I think people think there's so many great players in the Dodgers, it's kind of hard to point to any one guy being uh, that valuable. So I think you're probably right. And then also I was just realizing that it seems very likely that Jake Cronenworth is going to win the National League Rookie of the Year for the Padres as well. And so then I wonder who from the Padres can we get to win the National League Cy Young? Maybe this is Luis Perdomo's moment to shine. <laughs> a, man, no? a man can dream. But no, if we're going to talk about the NL Cy Young, this is a very good segue to our, our next I'm a professional podcast host. I, I almost did that on purpose. <laughs> Do you think Jake DeGrom has a real shot of winning a third straight Cy Young uh, award. He just kind of keeps on going. I remember an opening day where there were a couple guys who, you know, their velocity was down. Obviously, we had the whole wonky summer camp 2.0 and all that, and his velocity was up. And so far this year, he has been, as usual, fantastic. He's a 169 ERA. He is striking out 13 per nine. His 38% strikeout rate leads National League starting pitchers. Again, he has won the last two National League Cy Young Awards. And obviously, a lot can happen over the next couple weeks. But if you were to look at the other contenders in the National League. I think the main competition, well, I would have said two guys before the other day. I would have said you Darvish, who has been absolutely fantastic. And I would have said Max Freed, who's been great for Atlanta as like literally the only Atlanta starting pitcher. But how Freed is hurt doesn't sound like it's going to be serious, but I think in a short season, missing any amount of time is enough to set you back. And I would have maybe said like Josh Hader, had he really gone through a whole year with zero hits allowed? Because like this is the year to do that, right? But that didn't happen. And there's an argument that Devin Williams is a better Milwaukee reliever anyway. And you can go down the list and you could say, okay, yeah, maybe you know, Trevor Bauer has been really good. Sure. Uh, Clayton Kershaw has a, a 150 ERA, but in you know 15 fewer innings, uh, you know, Denelson Lamed and, and Scherzer and Wheeler and Zach Allen's been really good. But it sort of comes down to me right now to, I think, Darvish and DeGrom, and they're more or less tied, I think, pretty close. You can go either way. So I guess we can agree that it's not, a, it's at least very reasonable that he might win a third straight Cy Young. And if he does, I think you have to count it as quote unquote real. Like if some rando middle reliever, like, I don't know, Pedro Baez ripped off the best 25 innings of his life and had his zero ERA and won the Cy, you'd probably look at that and go, eh, that's kind of weird. But if DeGrom does it again, uh, I don't know how you can look at that as anything but real. Like this guy has clearly moved ahead of Garrett Cole for being the best pitcher in the game. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think so. Um, the consistency he's had over the last three years and the fact that Cole's been sort of like just okay with the Yankees, I think right now it's it's um, it's uh, it's DeGrom. Well, so if he does win, then he will be one of the very few pitchers in baseball history to win three Cy Youngs. And if you do that, you are more or less guaranteed entry into the Hall of Fame. There are 10 guys who have done it, and seven of them are in the Hall of Fame. Randy Johnson, Steve Carlton, Greg Maddox, Sandy Koufax, Pedro Martinez, Jim Palmer, and Tom Seaver. Uh, there are two more who are still active. That's Kershaw and Scherzer, who I think are both all but guaranteed to get into the Hall of Fame. 
And the final one is Roger Clemens, who certainly merits it, but obviously is not likely to get in for a variety of reasons. So here's my question. Jacob deGrom has not had a long career. He did not make his first opening day roster until he was 27 years old. He's already 32, despite the fact he's only been around for a couple of years. And yet a third Cy Young is, is that amount of sheer greatness in su- such a short time. And obviously you expect he'll continue to be good for a few years. Can that overcome what is going to be, you know, he's certainly not going to have the bulk that a lot of these guys who came up when they were 20, uh, 21. Like it's maybe too soon to start talking about his Hall of Fame candidacy, but if he gets that third sigh, that's that's rarefied air, right? Like you got to at least start thinking about it. Yeah, I mean it's it's um, I mean probably be the most jarring thing for for his candidacy is and you'll laugh at me, but it's like the, the number of wins that he has because I think right now he has sixty nine. Um, 69 and 50 that's his career 69 and 50 he's three and one this year <laughs> so like if like you know even in like a like a you know if he suddenly starts like actually getting a lot of decisions and racking up just you know 10 you know 12 to 15 wins for the next few years he's not he's almost certainly not even gonna get to 150 right which would be like way low for even like a, a starting pitcher in this in the in the hall of fame i guess you know the, the comp i think the comp would be johan santana right johan santana was like the best pitcher in baseball for a brief period. He only won two Cy Youngs. He finished third in one year in between, although he probably should have won that one. That was the one that like Bartolo Colon won. He probably, sh- Santana should have three straight, but he won 139 games, 52 career war per baseball reference. So that's like probably like the comp we'd be looking at for DeGrom. And, De- and Santana didn't even, did Santana fall off the ballot his first year? Mm, I think so. Um, and he didn't even sniff the Hall of Fame. So it's... I think it's it's. I mean, obviously, he didn't get the third Zayango either. So right, so that could actually kind of you know yeah he had, that's it. Um, the the thing working against Santana though was the, the the ballot was when he it was actually two years ago he was on the 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 ballot he only got two point four percent of votes. Working against him is that the ballots have been packed the last few years. You know, theoretically, there probably will be some some kind of like um, clear, clearing of the ballot, and that's already been going on. So that when when Degrom gets there, it will. Um, it will uh, it will be easier. There'll be an easier path for him to get there. I think he is um, better positioned than Santana for a lot of reasons. If he gets to the third Zion, um, that's one. Two, the electorate's changing. Like by the time Degrom is eligible, and this obviously assumes some level of dominance, dominance for what like five more years, maybe not like this, but you know, like you know, number one, number two star. You know, if he fades into being like a number two starter over the next five years, right? Um, you and I will like the, the voters are going to change. You and I will be voting by the time. Uh, that Degrom is eligible, and in the scenario we're discussing, like I think I would, you know, very seriously um, consider him. And I think there are a lot more probably like mind like minded voters joining the ranks who would who would consider them for those reasons. You, well, yeah, if if and when we are fortunate enough to get the vote, which for me is, I think five more years, and you're what like seven, yeah, something like I think, that. I think Degrom will. I would. Say, my guess is, assuming you know, barring something unforeseen, he will. My, by the time I'm voting, he will. He'll, you know, we'll both be voting by the time he's eligible. Right. So he's 32 right now. He has started 179 games. Uh, He has about 1,150 innings and 35 wins above replacement. So I actually looked into all current Hall of Famers and I tried to find what are the lowest minimums for those things. I actually found it harder than I thought because there were some guys who are like, oh, yeah, I think of Sandy Koufax as a starter. Right. He actually pitched in relief like a lot early in his career. So it's sort of hard to draw the line of who's a starter and who's not a starter and um, I sort of did it in pencil, but so he's got 179 games started. The fewest games started by a starting pitcher in the Hall of Fame is 230 by Dizzy Dean. 
if he's healthy, he's going to get to 230. And if he's not healthy, then we're not even having this conversation. Uh, the fewest innings pitched by a Hall of Famer overall, he's already passed it. It's uh, 1,042 uh, by, by Bruce Suter, but obviously he's not a reliever. The fewest innings pitched by a starting pitcher in the Hall of Fame. Again, it's what's a starting pitcher. It's either Dizzy Dean with 1,967 or Sandy Koufax with just over 2,300. Um, I think he'll get past Dean and closest to, to Koufax. And then the lowest wins above replacement by a starting pitcher in the Hall of Fame. I'm kind of discounting some ancient guys from the 19th century here, but 36.3 by Catfish Hunter. DeGrom's already at 35, so he'll beat that by the end of this season. So if we're just looking at, like, is he better than some of the lesser guys in the Hall of Fame? I think we're going to have the answer to that by, like, next summer. And you're right. If he has two more fantastic seasons and then three or four good seasons after that, this seems like a pretty easy conversation to me. And if he doesn't, then we don't have to talk about it because then he's not even close. Also, the the, the standard for what makes a Hall of Fame starting pitcher is is going to have to keep changing, right? Otherwise, no starters are going to – because no, no one's getting – 200 wins, let alone 300 wins, right? So, like, even that's going to kind of um, there's probably there probably will be a pitcher between now and Degrom. I'm not even sure. If, I'm not sure if one comes to mind off the top of my head, um, but he might end up being like the kind of like the big test case of like, okay, what does it take? You know, let's let's kind of like rip up what we think a Hall of Fame starting pitcher looks like. Let's forget about you know the workhorses of the the um, the the 70s and 80s, which I think kind of just kind of, 60 the, the workhorses of like the 60s and the 70s and early 80s just sort of like I think warped people's perception of like <laughs> what you know like like what Steve what Tom Seaver and like Steve Carlton were doing is just like it's not possible anymore. So like we have to like you know um, have to and the obviously we've been talking a lot about Steve uh, Tom Seaver in light of his um, unfortunate passing last week and just like some of the numbers he put up. It's just like I mean he had. You know, I looked at this was like my favorite Seaver stat. He's the only pitcher ever who had a five war season at age twenty two or younger, and a five war season at age forty or older. <laughs> I mean, how is that? For I know that one for longevity and dominance. Like that was <laughs> so. Like there's no one's just no one's going to do that. And, and Degrom's extreme in his own right. I mean, he didn't debut till he was you know as you said till he was twenty six. But even a guy like Garrett Cole, who was the first pick in the draft and basically was like in the majors the next year and like a good pitcher who became a great one. Like they're not getting to these benchmarks, so we kind of have to forget about them and rethink what a Hall of Fame pitcher is. Because we're not going to just stop putting starting pitchers in the Hall of Fame, right? Um, we basically have. <laughs> I, I mean, well, I think at some point the the, the swing in voters is going to change that, and that's, that's you know, true. We'll, we'll start seeing, you know, you know, even Kershaw, who is like, you know, in the conversation for best pitcher ever, right? What's it? I mean, what's his his current win total? I'm 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 pulling it up now as we speak. Um, well, he's not going to get to like you know, 300 or anything. Nobody's going to get to that's, I mean, that's sort of what I'm saying, right? Like, yeah. You, there's an argument for Kershaw, who's basically the same age as, as, as DeGrom, but obviously he's not – he peaked you know, as, as effective as Kershaw still currently is, and he's still very good. And he's been very good this year. He just hasn't had any durability for the last few years. He's seemingly peaked like um, you know, in 2015, but he's at 174 wins, right? And he'll probably get to 220, you know? Sure. Like, um, which is a big number. That's basically that's that's sort of like that. That's essentially like going to be like the new high mark, right? The Kershaw, a guy who debuted at twenty, was a star at twenty three and dominant for a decade plus, is going to end up with like low two hundreds, and that's sort of how we we think of like what like a high level win total can be. Yeah, anyone who knows me knows that I have no regard for pitcher wins and losses, and I think that's actually been exacerbated this year when I see some of the relievers who start a game at extra innings. There's a runner on second. And if that run scores, it's an unearned run, right? Like it's not counted as an earned run, but that guy still gets the loss. 
which is hilarious. And I don't know why we bother doing that. Um, two weeks ago, I went on vacation for a couple of days and you filled in for me with Will Leach, which for, was a very good show. And you tweeted about it. And I saw someone reply to your tweet, uh, paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me. Why don't you ever talk about the A's? And I don't know if you were talking poorly about the A's or not talking about the A's at all. I feel like I talk about the A's a lot. Like I generally talk about the three teams I think I talk about the most are the A's, the Rays, and the Rockies, um, which I know are a weird combination. But because I always appreciate listener feedback, Matt is going to talk about the A's. And specifically, you want to focus on the bullpen. Well, because yeah, I was I was starting to dig into the A's, and I was like, well, what what makes you know what makes the the A's you know special, right? And I think that like um, going into the season, my thought was like, oh well, you know, Matt Chapman, he was actually my MVP pick um, in the American League. Womp womp. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's got ten homers, but he also has a two seventy six OBP. Um, the defense is still excellent, but you know, two seventy six OBP, the the whole. Uh, MVP thing that is that's not happening, um, you know. And then you've got Matt Olson who's hitting home runs, but also hitting 188. Um, so like there, and Marcus Simeon has a um, 277 OBP. So if you heard those things when this going into the season, you would have been like, "Wow!" If Chapman and Matt Olson and Simeon all kind of hit on the low end of their expectations, these aren't going to be very good at all. Can, at all. can I interrupt you for for one second? I'm yes. looking at this now. Who's the best hitter on the A's this year? Robbie Grossman. Robbie Grossman. <laughs> Can't say I saw that one coming. I'm sorry. Go on. No, Robbie Grossman is like one of the, I feel like he just like, I, my, my vision of Robbie Grossman is the guy who just sort of like gets like, like passed around AL teams and just sort of like appears in new yeah. teams. <laughs> and like, it's like off-brand Corey Dickerson. Um, but he's always been a good, he's always been a pretty good OBP guy and he's definitely been a very good OBP guy this year, um, 394, but also slugging over 500 and having a really, a really nice year. So anyway, if you'd come into this year and said, okay, if the A's are going to succeed, it's going to be because Chapman, Simeon, and Olsen really carry them, right? Well, no. Those guys have all been actually pretty bad and yet, and yet the A's are, um, what, they're now like, uh, six games ahead of the, the Astros in the loss column, uh, four and a half in the standings. Um, and I was like, so what, how are the A's doing this? Well, as it turns out, their bullpen uh, has just been, and I knew it was good, but it was like, as I dug into it, I was like, oh, wow, it's it's been really good. Um, they have by far the lowest bullpen ERA in baseball. They're at 2.09, um, which is almost a half run better than number two, the Dodgers who are at 2.55. Um, I also found comically the Phillies are 30th. At seven point too far. Yes, that's right. The Phillies bullpen is a full bullpen ERA is a full five runs <laughs> higher than the A's. Um, the Phillies obviously made some trades to try and address that at the um, at the deadline. They've been playing very well, so I don't think that's a true reflection of the Phillies bullpen. It's just um, comical to look at. But the, the the A's bullpen is just like filled with really interesting interesting guys. You know, we talked. I think a few weeks ago, you and I had this conversation of like who's the best reliever in baseball. And at the time, I sort of was like, well, I think that like objectively speaking, it kind of comes down to when you consider like current performance and like two-year track record, it probably comes down to Nick Anderson versus Liam Hendricks, as silly as that sound. And since we had that conversation, Nick Anderson got hurt and Liam Hendricks continues to just like be a dominant reliever. He's got a um, a 1.47 ERA. His expected ERA based on stat cast, like batted ball, um, Quality of contact and uh, strikeouts and walks is 2.32, which is basically the same as last year when he was arguably the best um, reliever in baseball. So this is no fluke. He's got a 40% strikeout rate, a 4.4% walk rate. So he strikes out everyone and walks no one. Um, his slider, which is not actually his primary pitch. It's like his number two pitch. He throws a ton of four seamers and a slider. 
the expected weighted on base against his slider this year is 0.017. Um, it's basically impossible to make good contact on his slider is basically what it's saying. So they've got Liam Hendricks, a strong argument now as the best um, reliever in baseball. And then the other guy who really stands out to me as interesting is Jake Diekman, who I feel like he was, he had a moment like what, like three years ago, I think maybe when he was with the Rangers where he had like a stretch in a couple of years, a couple of months where he was like the, the, the flavor of the month, like, um, you know, great new reliever. I feel like if we were doing like our let's discover a guy in 2017, Jake Diekman would have come up. Um, but he's had some struggles. But this year, he's thrown 15 innings, has not allowed a single run. And that's not a fluke. His uh, 2.5 to expect the ERA is in the top 5% of the league. So he's really been um, one of the most, uh, most dominant pitchers. And what's fascinating about him, um, the walks are still a little bit high, still strike walking 16% of batters. So that's the kind of thing that in a tight playoff game, might give you a little bit of pause. But the thing about him is that he actually, he changed his slider during the year this year, and he did it from the Pitching Ninja on Twitter. Um, David Adler wrote a great piece about this on MLB.com that basically when the season began, Diekman had a, um, was throwing more of like a, like a traditional slider with like, you know, seven inches of horizontal break. And then he saw the Pitching Ninja tweet Chaz Rose slider. And you probably heard us talk about Chaz Rose slider on this podcast. He's on the raise. I don't even know how to describe Chaz Rose slider. It's like it's calling it a frisbee slider doesn't even do it justice. It's like I mean, it's a wiffle ball. It's like a, it's like a cheat pitch, right? Like I mean, what, like how would you how would you describe it? Frisbee from hell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it moves like a foot horizontally. Um, so um, Diekman tweeted at the pitching ninja. He was like, "Hey, can you show me? Can, can you show me that Chaz Rose grip?" And the pitching ninja has like a Dropbox folder with like pitch, photos of pitch grips. And he tweeted it back at Jake Diekman. And Jake Diekman has basically changed his slider during the season. It is now getting like, you know, it was like seven inches of horizontal break. Now he's getting like 15 inches of horizontal break and has like now like he's basically trying to emulate this like crazy uh, Chaz Rose slider. It's not exactly the same type of movement, but it just speaks to like the like the the weapons that pitchers now have at their disposal, not just of just like not just the modern technology in their own clubhouses, but also like <laughs> people on Twitter, like at their disposal who like tweet gifts and like can like allow them to, um, to change their repertoire, like on the fly. And so you've got, you know, you've got Hendricks, you've got Diekman, and they also have like, you know, a bunch of other, like, you know, like JB Wendelkin is really good. You smell for tea is, it's reliably like solid. Um, they have like this huge, they the big X factor is also Birch Smith, who they got from the Giants. Uh, in the offseason, who was basically a nobody who's increased his spin rate, and maybe that's related to him hurting his arm. Um, he's been excellent this year. He might be back for the playoffs. It's a little unclear, but um, I look at the A's. They're, they're, they're starting pitchers. You know, there was a lot of talk, oh, this year, this is the year Frankie Montes, John Manea, like Jesus Lazardo. It's going to be like a great young rotation. Those guys have been okay. Um, some of them, they're, 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 they're like underlying metrics suggest that maybe they're better than their ERAs. But it's really been the bullpen that's kind of carrying the team, while the starting pitchers, the supposed stars of the team, the starting pitchers and their trio of infield, trio, trio of infielders, has really struggled. Yeah, who's the best starting pitcher for Oakland this year? Is it actually Chris Bassett? Which is kind of surprising because you know Fires has been fine, Montes, as you said, you know I kind of expected big things because he was so good last year before he got suspended and he hasn't been that great. Um, I'm out on Sean Mania just because the velocity is never there, and when you look at the bullpen. Um, as you said, Hendricks, obviously, but there's just like sort of a random collection of guys because you have these two veterans in Joaquin Soria, who's been around forever, 
And Yusmero Petit, who's really been around forever. He's been around so long, he was once traded for Carlos Delgado. <laughs> He's been around so long. I looked this up. You want to remember some guys? Because we're about to. His major league debut came in a Florida-Pittsburgh game in May of twenty of 2006. Do you know who the left side of the infield was for the Marlins that day? Hanley Ramirez at shortstop and Miguel Cabrera at third base. <laughs> Those are some guys. This was a particularly dark time in Pittsburgh history. Um, <laughs> Jeremy Burnitz was in right and Jason Bay was in left. And Jose Bautista was the leadoff man at third base. And Yusmero Petit got into that game. Um, I kind of hadn't noticed until we started talking about this, how good JB Wendelkin has been. He's sort of like, you know, just, just a guy. But I remember last year, every time I would look up like the expected statistics from StatCast, like who's who's striking out guys well and preventing walks and preventing loud contact. And he always popped near the top and they just never seemed to prioritize him. So I thought maybe it was a small sample size thing. So it's kind of cool to see how great he's been. And it's also, you know, they had a really good bullpen, what, two years ago too, but it was largely based around Hendricks, who's still good. Blake Trinan, who's now with the Dodgers and Lou Trevino, who's, you know, still there, but he has not been necessarily, you know, one of the, the primary guys. So they've done a fantastic job of turning things around. And they also traded for Mike Miner um, from Texas, who has not actually been that good in his first start or or two for the uh, A's. And I don't know if he'll actually start in the postseason, but yeah, it's fun. Like they've been very good for the last two years and they're very good this year, just in an entirely different way than you could have ever have expected. It'd be nice if like, you know, Olsen started crushing the ball again and, you know, Piscotti's like been fine. Chris with a K Davis seems totally cooked. Like this is the second year of this now. Um, anyway, I like the A's because they are always zigging, I guess. I don't know, but I'm in on them and I hope that they get to, you know what I want? I want A's raise ALCS that I would watch. Well, I mean, you look at the, the thing is you look at the bullpen and that's part of the reason I've, I've, I've hoped for them is like, it's cause it's like, it's a bullpen, but it's also, it's deep. Like they, they you know, like, in a po- you know, because especially this postseason with so many games, you know, you're gonna have the, this, you know, the, the first round of three, three, best of three, and then the then best of five and seven and seven, like. They're not going to have to rely on just like two relievers or three relievers. Like you know, they they can go um, you know like six or seven deep and like really cycle through very good relievers in every game, even if they need to get a lot of innings. Because I don't expect their starting pitchers to go deep in games. So that sort of like I think puts them in a good in a good position where they're they're not going to be in a situation where they have to use the same the same guys over and over again. Obviously, they're, they're going to want to use. Hendricks in as many games as they can, but he can't pitch in every game. So um, they still have Soria and Diekman and and Wendelkin. So it's like, a, is it Wendelkin or Wendelkin? I believe it's the first, but I guess I'm not 100 percent sure. Anyway, but like, it, and, and even Trevino, who's still been like, you know, good this year. So it's not like it's 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 a very deep bullpen, and I think that um, I I would love to see a, a raise is. Uh, ALCS as well. I feel like we've sort of actually sort of like stolen our next segment by like, hey, that's like <laughs> talking about the A's bullpen is a very good segue into being like, let's now discover some more guys you probably don't know a lot about. Well, I made sure that my guy this week was not a nameless reliever. Um, I have a nameless catcher. I want to talk about Pedro Severino of the Orioles, a team I guess we're going to have to focus on more soon. I want to know if Pedro Severino is just a guy or if he's a capital letter, a guy. He signed with the Nationals a decade ago in 2010 as an amateur free agent, spent parts of 2015 through 18 with them, you know, 282 plate appearances, a 48 OPS plus. Seems like your typical third catcher, right? And he actually got DFA'd 
before last season because he wasn't going to make the team and he was out of options. He was claimed a couple of days later by the Orioles and he was fine. You know, I actually hit okay. You know, 96 games and 95 OPS plus. Uh, I was doing research for him on this and I actually found a tweet of my own from December 19th of last year where I said, I'm working up an end of the year piece and somehow Pedro Severino had one of the most incredible years we didn't even notice. And then I said in parentheses, He's a catcher for Baltimore. It's okay if you didn't know that. So that should tell you how notable he was. That's because last year I was writing about the, you know, the most extreme moments of 2019, like kind of holiday coverage pieces you do at the end of the year. And he popped up for two reasons. One is he was one of the few guys who got a hit on a batted ball that had a 1% hit probability, which basically means he popped it up and the fielders stood around and looked at each other as it fell for a hit. He also had the fastest pop time to second base on any individual of anybody last year 1.75 seconds and then also he somehow hit three homers in a game in texas and also almost blew the game a 12 11 win because he almost had a passed ball on the final pitch so anyway that put him on my radar i found him to be a fascinating guy here's what i didn't expect this year he's hitting 325 403 on base a 518 slugging percentage he is 50 percent better than the league average his underlying expected statistics are similar to kyle seager robinson cano jd davis and Mike Kostremski, and yet he doesn't hit the ball hard. He is in the 21st percentile in hard hit rate. Now he's doing other things well, striking out less. Uh, he's walking more. Uh, when he puts the ball in the air, he's pulling it a little more. He's like, you know, doing these little things, but that line is not a fluke. His actual weighted on base is 390, and his expected is 388. He's still only 27 years old. He is one of many reasons that this Baltimore team that everybody expected to be like literally the worst team in big league history. Like you thought it was going to be, you know, 62 Mets, uh, 2003 Tigers, 2020 Orioles. Like that's how we thought about this team. And they are, you know, close to 500. Pedro Severino is a big part of that out of nowhere. So credit to him. What will be interesting is how they sort of position Severino because they're, they're like kind of their franchise prospect, right? As a catcher at the Rutschman. Um, And good catching is really hard to come by um in this day and age so like theoretically i'm not saying they're going to trade severino this offseason but like the, you know rutchman is probably someone it's hard to know how like it's this year is kind of hard to tell from a development standpoint under like a normal timeline rutchman is like a number one overall pick as a catcher probably would have you know he was the number one pick in 2018 he probably would have been like sort of ready for 2021 uh, or sorry number one pick number 19 in 2019 so he'd probably be ready for 2021 um so it'll be interesting to see how they position severino um with Rutschman on the way, they're obviously not in a rush to 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 move him because he is um, he's under club control. He's hits arbitration for the first time this offseason, so he's he's got three more years of club control. But that also could make him really valuable as a trade chip. And I don't know if he will ever be more valuable than he's going to be uh, this this offseason. So, but either way, you're you know right. what that is. What? That's a good problem to have. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> that is a good problem to have indeed. Um, yeah, the the, the 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 Orioles are sort of. Um, you know, they're similar to the Giants, the team I'm about to talk about, with like they've they're kind of surprised people with a bunch of kind of like breakouts by like not mid career players, but guys in their like sort of like mid to late twenties that are kind of kind of coming on in ways that you wouldn't have, you know, inspe- expected in, you know, with with in the, in the, with the Orioles guys like um uh Santander and uh Anthony Santander and Pedro Zarino. And then you have a team like the Giants where like Mike Zastrzemski has taken a huge step forward. And then you got a guy like Austin Slater. Um, Austin Slater is a guy who 
Um, his name popped up over the weekend because he hit a leadoff home run in uh, against Madison Bumgarner and Madison Bumgarner's first uh, game pitching back in uh, against the uh, against the Giants. And Austin Slater coming into this year in 544 career plate appearances had 1.1 career total WAR per Fangraphs. This year in 68 plate appearances he has 1.1 WAR per Fangraphs. So in 68 plate appearances he has equaled what he had done in 544 um, plate appearances. And he's interesting. I, when you when you go on like the 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 leaderboard for like um, barrels, which I always like to do, uh, barrels, which is like the Statcast metric for like the optimal way you can hit a baseball in terms of exit velocity and launch angle for the likelihood of getting a extra base hit. Um, he's in terms of barrels per plate appearances. He's among the leaders. Um, granted, he, if you have, you have to, he hasn't not been an everyday player. He's been hurt a little bit, um, and um, that's kind of so he doesn't he does not does not qualify, but if, among players of the 388 players with 25 balls in play, his 10.3% barrels per plate appearance is 21st. So that's, I mean, that's obviously a small sample size, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's real, as, as real as can be, I guess. Um, and the thing you notice about him when you start to dig a little deeper is that he is someone who's, you know, tried to, not to, not to, not to get all like 2017 on you, but he's like seemed to have joined the, the, the launch angle revolution, uh, so to speak, last year. His average launch angle was 3.4 degrees. This year, 13.9 degrees. So he's he's getting the ball in the air, and he's hitting 328, 426, 603. Um, they spot him a little bit. I mean, I think they saw him as kind of a platoon player. Um, his overall line against righties is pretty good. He's got like an 800 OPS, but he also has a 421 uh, batting average on balls of play against uh, righties, so it feels a little fluky. Against lefties, however, he's hitting 400, 516, 800. So um, he clearly has a, is a... Uh, a bit of a lefty masher. One thing I found interesting about him as well is that he went to college at, uh, at Stanford. He was a eighth round pick in 2014. And for those who follow like the draft and um, amateur baseball, there's sort of this like thing about Stanford hitters. It's called the Stanford swing. And it's become sort of like it was over the years, it's become like a, a pejorative, like a, a negative thing you say about Stanford hitters. And it was happened. I mean, it, it mostly happened to their longtime coach, um, Mark Marquis, and he's not there anymore, but the, the idea, but Slater was there when Marquis was still there. The idea is that for a long time, so it goes, I'm not, you know, this is just sort of the reputation. I'm not speaking to the, the necessarily the accuracy of it. The reputation was that like Stanford players, Stanford players were taught sort of to hit for contact, to hit the other way, that they were not taught to, um, to drive the ball. And that that was sort of like the, the, the knock on Stanford prospects. And for a long time, there was a lot of Stanford hitting prospects who came out of college with a ton of hype who just like, you know, never panned out. There were a lot of guys who were really, uh, let's, you know, we can remember some guys who came with, with a lot of hype who did not pan out at all. Jeffrey Hammond, who was like a top five draft pick. Um, let's see, uh, John Mayberry Jr., who was a, was a first round draft pick. Uh, um, Ryan well, Carlos Carlton. Quentin was one of those guys. Carlos right? Quentin, but he, Carlos he, Quentin was one of the success stories, right? I think he, yeah, yeah, yeah. he actually hit like 35 home runs. He was like sort of the, the, uh, yeah. The how, about Joe, how about Joe Borcher? <laughs> Joe Borcher. There you go. So anyway, but Slater is, you know, he's, he, whatever you think about the Stanford swing, he, um, he's clearly tried to change his approach. Um, you know, last year in an interview with the McCovey Chronicles, he was quoted as saying the launch angle and loft, they're the big buzzwords now, but hitters have been doing that forever. I think cleaning up pad of a bet, the, the bath, bat path is another way to put it. Hitters have always done it, but creating the launch angle loft is a direct effect of cleaning up your bat path and how you enter the zone. 
uh, in the same article, he talked a little bit how he was kind of taught to sort of chop wood and that he was sort of just trying, instead of trying to like chop down on the ball, just trying to keep a smooth, uh, smooth swing through the strike zone. And again, we're talking about a small sample here, but if you're looking about players who sort of open your eyes a little bit in terms of the quality of contact that they're making, uh, Austin Slater jumps to the top of the list. And when you look at reasons for why the Giants are surprising, um, I think he's a, he's a huge reason why. He is, and and yet you did not mention the most interesting fact about Austin Slater, which is that as a senior in high school, he broke his ankle before the season playing Ultimate Frisbee, which I find to be a very interesting life story. It kind of tanked his draft stock, and he ended up getting drafted in the 44th round by the Dodgers and chose not to sign and instead go to Stanford, and I guess that has worked out for him. All right, we're going to finish off with our purpose pitch, our closing rant And I'm glad, Matt, that you just mentioned barrels, because this one's going to be so much about barrels. I feel like we need to have stronger opinions on who gets to be nicknamed barrels. Let's stick with the Giants. Donovan Solano is having a really good year for the Giants. There's no question about that. He's got a 353 average. His OPS is over 930. He's having a great year after kind of bouncing around. I remember him He's like a nondescript guy with the Marlins for a bunch of years. Uh, I don't remember the nine games he played for the Yankees in 2016, but I guess he did. So great. Good for him. He's having a good year, and he has been nicknamed Donnie Barrels. Uh, so as Matt explained, a barrel is a StatCast term for perfect combination of exit velocity and launch angle. To go a little deeper, it means you have to have on a given batted ball uh, an expected average of at least 500. So it's got to be a hit half the time and an expected slugging of 1500. So it's got to be a powerful hit right? Barrels are, you know, the guys who crush baseballs hit barrels. Donovan Solano has a 353 average. That's true. He's also got just seven barrels this year. The leaders have over 20 and he's in the 29th percentile of barrels. I reject this name for Donovan Solano. And this isn't the first time back in 2018, Blue Jays backup catcher, Luke Melly, who had a, has a 304 career slugging percentage, got the nickname Lukey Barrels because he had a couple of big walk-off hits. Stroman tweeted about it, and he went so far as to wear Lukey Barrels on his jersey for Players Weekend. The year before, in 2017, Pat Valeka, who had a couple of big hits for the Rockies that year, was nicknamed by Bud Black Patty Barrels. He has a career slugging percentage of 412, and I say no. I say none of these guys deserve the distinguished nickname of barrels. And then I thought to myself, well, who, who, who should it be? Should it be the man with the single season barrels record, which I forgot to look up, but I'm pretty sure is Aaron judge from a couple years ago. Uh, Aaron barrels doesn't really roll off the tongue. And I don't know, Aaron barrels feels like he manages a Fuddruckers in Ohio or something and judges hurt all the time. Anyway, should it be who has the most barrels of the season right now? That's Fernando Tatis jr. Fernando Barrels doesn't sound great either, and I actually feel like that undersells all the great things that Tatis can do. Should it be the most barrels since we began tracking this in 2015? Now, here it gets interesting. Only three hitters have had at least 300 barrels in that time. Number three is J.D. Martinez. Okay, that's a good one. Uh, Number two is Mike Trout. He's not going to be Mikey Barrels because he's so good at literally everything else. The most barrels since 2015, 329 by by Nelson Cruz. Nelly Barrels? That sounds good. And that's what he does. He doesn't play defense. He crushes. Bar- I like Nelly Barrels. I like JD. Ba- I think JD Barrels. Uh, the judges would also accept JD Barrels. JD Barrels is good too, but he's actually not having that great. Feet. No, he's so not. I, Nelson I, Cruz is, is just, a, it's, it's, his career is just sort of mind blowing. He's, he's he better is, this year. He's, he is 
three times. Granted, this is partially due to all the double headers this year, but he has three three times this year he has homered in both games of a double header. <laughs> How awesome is Nelson Cruz? He's just it, he's the, he's the best. Um, um, I I also thought about potentially going with the the complete troll face way to look at this. The ironic barrels for uh, Rockies catcher Tony Walters, who has not had a barrel since August twenty seventh of twenty eighteen. It was a home run and just barely like the lowest possible qualification you can have for a barrel is, is a minimum of 98 miles an hour and a launch angle between 26 and 30. And the harder you hit it, the wider the launch angle gets 98 between 26 and 30, that home run 98.3 and 29. He has had 534 plate appearances since his last barrel in the time since he hit his last barrel. Mike Trout has 98 of them. So Tony barrels, I thought would be fun, but he probably doesn't want that. Therefore I decree Nelly barrels. Thanks, Gavel. Um, all right. For my purpose pitch, I want to talk about the Mookie Betts trade. Uh, the Mookie Betts trade was obviously one of the more controversial, I guess, you know, discussed. I don't know if controversial is the right word. Uh, moves of the offseason. Mookie Betts was a year from free agency and the Red Sox trade him to the Dodgers uh, with one year left uh, before he hit free agency. In return, they got outfielder Alex Verdugo. Uh, and two infield prospects, Jeter Downs and Connor Wong. And the Red Sox took a lot of heat for the move. Um, you know, the belief, I think, understandably, and this is not to defend their their sort of willingness to just sort of like not even seemingly it, to the outsider, it seemed like they didn't really even try to sign, re-sign Mookie Betts. It's hard to know exactly what happened, but it sort of it sort of seemed to seem like they saw Betts leaving as a free agent as sort of a foregone conclusion. And they were just going to trade him. They weren't prepared to spend the money. And a lot of people are like, well, you're the Red Sox. You you know, you're a big market team. You sell out all the time. If anyone should be re-signing a franchise player, it should be the Red Sox. And I've, as the season's gone on and I've seen, you know, Betts is playing great for the Dodgers and is, you know, an MVP candidate and the Red Sox are just having a terrible season. I've seen a lot of like, I can't, I've seen a lot of like, I can't believe the, the Red Sox just let Mookie Betts go takes. And I just, like, I think it's a little disingenuous. They didn't just let him go. Whether or not you want to defend ownership for trading him and the 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 um, the whether they got enough for him, they didn't just let him go. They made a trade. They traded him with one year before free agency, which in baseball history is like a pretty common thing that happens more often with small market teams, but it does happen with big market teams. I mean, the Dodgers traded Mike Piazza in his year before free agency. Mike Piazza, the guy who was friends with like Tommy, whose dad was, fr- was you know, Tommy, he was Tommy like, Lasorda was his godfather. Tommy Lasorda's godson, Mike Piazza. They traded Mike Piazza a, year before, uh, a few months before free agency. The Mariners traded Ken Griffey Jr. a year before, before free agency. This happens all the time. They did not just let bets go. They added talent. And they also cleared some sort of fairly dead money on their payroll by moving David Price in the deal as well. If they felt like it was a long shot, they were going to re-sign Mookie. It's not like a crazy thing to do. Like, it, you know, we also don't know how they want to run their team. They may say like, we want to run, you know, like it, it's, it's just kind of unknowable. And also let's not forget Alex Verdugo, who they got in the trade has been really good this year. He's hitting 311, 370, 523. He leads the AL in doubles. He has a 136 weighted runs created plus where 100 is league average. So that's like a really good young piece who's I think his second year. So they'll have him under club control for like four or five more years. They also added Jeter Downs, who has obviously hasn't played this year because there has been no minor league baseball, but absolutely raked last year, who MLB Pipeline ranks as their number one prospect. 
So like we can like debate the merits of the trade where they should have done it or not. Like, you know, I like it when teams can keep their core guys and you have that identity of players staying with one franchise for a long time. But like, it's not like they just let them walk and they didn't get anything, anything for them. In fact, they got a lot more for them than if he had just left as a free agent. And it's pretty clear the Red Sox weren't going anywhere, going anywhere this year anyway, with or without Mookie Betts. So it may end up in the long run being not such a crazy trade, not such a bad trade for them, even from a baseball perspective. Mm, okay. Let me let me agree with the things I agree with before I, I get to the rest of it. I do agree with you completely that acting as though they got nothing for him is, is disrespectful to how good Alex Verdugo is and how good Jeter Downs and Connor Wong, who was the catching prospect they got back, might be. You're, you're totally right. They didn't get nothing. They got quality young players. Um, I don't know if I agree about Price being dead money because the Red Sox pitching staff is unwatchable. I mean, we couldn't have known at the time he was going to opt out, right? And maybe that, I don't know if that would have happened or not with Boston. It's just a tough look. Like, Betts is likely going to be a Hall of Famer. There's, it seems to me there's no dollar amount that's too much for him. And you mentioned that the Dodgers did it with Mike Piazza. Well, that hits me in the sweet spot a little bit. I grew up a Dodger fan and Mike Piazza is my favorite all-time player. Like you have so few moments in your life where you're like, oh, I remember exactly where I was when that happened. For me, that was when Mike Piazza got traded. I was, let's see, how old would I have been? 14, I guess. I was working a summer job at the boardwalk in the Jersey Shore, and I don't even remember how I found out Mike Piazza got traded, um, but it was it was crushing to me, and it was for the wrong reasons. It was because the O'Malley's had finally sold to like the Fox conglomerate, and as I remember, it wasn't even the GM who made the trade. It was like some rando Fox executive who everybody hated, and to be fair, they got you know, Gary Sheffield, who had a good couple years for the Dodgers, but like looking back, do I wish Mike Piazza went to the Hall of Fame? as a Dodger and not a Met. I mean, listen, you grew up a Mets fan. I'm sure you love that Mike Piazza was a Met, but that doesn't happen probably without that trade. And I, I get what you're saying about the good players that got back for Dugo's going to be fun to watch, but I don't know if I'm a Red Sox fan. I still wish I had Mookie Betts around for the next 10 years. Yeah, I think, I think, I think that that's fair. And I think it's more just like, I think I sort of take issue with like, I, I, and I agree with you. And I even said that, like, I, I, I always like when teams can sort of keep their guys, right? Like, I think it's always just, it's better. It's just like, it's great when players have identities with franchises, you know, when you see, especially, you know, when, when players in their careers, you see that connection, it's, it's always like, there's something really, really special about that. And you know, I went, you know, I was there the night that like, David Wright came back for like one last game with the Mets after not having played for like two years. And it was like this really cool, you know, special evening. It's like sort of like what fandom is all about, like fans together having that connection with the players. So like, I guess, you know, from that aspect, I'm, 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 I'm with you. And if I was a Red Sox fan, I would be, I would be frustrated because I would obviously prefer to have Mookie Betts. I, I think it's just like, I feel like it's what's gotten kind of lost is just, and maybe this is like a little bit of cynical of me. It's like, they actually did get some really good talent back. And just the fact that like this kind of thing is actually like it or not, it's pretty common. This wasn't like they sort of like, you know, went way against any sort of like, you know, team building precedent by being like, well, this guy's a free agent next year. We're probably not going to resign him. So like, let's get what we can for him now. Like, that's just a thing that's done all the time. And I feel like it's kind of getting lost a little bit that that's kind of a common practice. And they actually got some pretty good, pretty good players back. Sure. They, sh- they should have tried harder to resign him, but I agree with you that even if he was on the team in 2020, they still would have been very bad because Mookie Betts is not a pitcher. Uh, that's our show for this week. That is the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm Mike. He is Matt. Thanks for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever 
or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 